Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shambles regular Sunday science question and answer session. We have, uh, we're, we're responding to audience demand this week because we had so many questions on mental health last time we did this, that we are going back to that topic for part two and you've sent even more questions. So who knows whether there'll be a part three or not. Uh, but we're going to try and get through as many as we can today. And just before we get started on all of that, um, the... Standard reminder, which does matter, even though you've all heard it before, that if you can possibly support us on Patreon or in the tip jar, that is very much appreciated. Obviously, all live shows are, have stopped and are basically stopped for the foreseeable future. And so everyone who relied on live performances is now struggling a little bit. And if you do watch this regularly and you're doing all right, then, you know, a little contribution would be very much appreciated. Obviously, we try to make it free for as many people as possible. So if that's not you, that's okay. But if you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles, that is an amazing thing. And if you do, there is uh, there are Patreon only things now. So there's a Patreon only podcast documentary series. Uh, and I think the second episode has just gone out. And that is I think what I think of as Rob, one of Robin's favorite topics. It's nothing I know anything about, but it's called uh, an uncanny hour and this week's episode has Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and they are talking about all sorts of things that if you're a Patreon supporter you can listen into. So 
coming up, we can't do live shows, but what we can do is uh, online shows, even more online shows. And because we've been doing a lot of online shows, we can always make them bigger and better. And this is the biggest of all because Trent and Robin thought it would be a hilarious idea to do a 24-hour continuous show uh, from the, from noon on December the 12th, which is a Saturday, until noon on December the 13th. Me and everyone else think this is ridiculous, but that's never stopped Cosmic Shambles yet. So that will be Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People, which is a brilliant title. And they're introducing lots of guests as time goes on. Uh, so guests announced this week include Nitin Sawney, uh, the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti and Rachel, the excellent Rachel House. So it will be free to watch online. But if you'd like to support all the charities, that's where the profits are going. And so you can buy a virtual ticket at crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons and one of the charities we're supporting which is very relevant to the topic we're dealing with today is um, Mind for Better which is a mental health charity. So as we're going along we always appreciate more questions just to challenge everyone so if you've got any questions do put them in the live chat or tweet at Cosmic Shambles and Trent will pick them up and pass them on and one other thing is that uh, Science Book Shambles podcast is still going on and this week's episode had Robin and Josie were talking to Hugh Warwick who is the very enthusiastic hedgehog expert so if you want to know about hedgehogs or wildlife or any of those things uh, have a look for that Science Book Shambles um podcast okay so get to, we'll get to uh oh well actually before we get to our guests this week i need to say something very important which is that we are going to be talking um about mental health and obviously that comes along may come along with discussions about things like suicide and self-harm and so um these are serious topics and if you're you know if if it's important that you know that that might be coming up and in particular um the other thing is that our experts are all experts in their field, but they are speaking about everything generally, and none of this is intended as clinical advice. Um, so, you know, that's that's an important thing to remember. If you need professional help, we are not professional help, um, but we might provide some insight into interesting questions. And also, um, to some of today's questions will be anonymous for obvious reasons. So let's get to our three guests and what they've got to show us. So uh, we have Dean Burnett, Nav Kapoor and Susie Gage. So let's start with Dean, scientist who has Dean, Sorry you to got... bore you. Sorry. <laughs> how are you doing? We should ask that question, right? Yeah. It's a mental health person. How are you doing today? All right. Yeah, yeah. it's been a tough time of things but, um, last few months. The last well, couple of weeks ago, nothing bad has happened uh, that I'm aware of. So that's usually a good sign. And uh, yeah, so obviously the election thing was yesterday, which was quite a tumultuous event, but in, in a good way. Um, yeah, uh, not much to report really since we last spoke. So oh, it's good. I like cool. updates like the weather forecast, isn't it? Yes. Um, more of that. Great, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Shipping forecast. Okay, what's your show and tell for us? Uh, well, I scoured my bookshelf to find uh, uh, something of interest, and I found a few uh, nostalgia picks. Um, because I got the the thick of it book uh, from like 2010, I believe, before the the uh, the Conservative um, coalition government came in. And obviously, obviously, it's a satirical political show. But I've no, it's quite I used to read this and laugh, thinking this is so funny. But also now I'm even thinking. Uh, so, you know, a fond nostalgia for a time when this was as ridiculous as politics could possibly get, because I've read it again recently thinking there's nothing in here which, uh, you know, <laughs> it all seems so sober and restrained compared to the last five years or the last 24 hours. So it's you know, it's a good book for nostalgic reasons now, as well as um, comedic appreciation. And my other one was, uh, my, my oldest thing is a, 
It's a program from The Bed Sitting Room, written by Spike Milligan, the play uh, oh, from the 1960s. Wow. That uh, is brilliant. Cost one shilling, written by John Antrobus and Spike Milligan. Um, I got this because I actually put it on as a production in um, in the drama club when I was in university. And I just bring it up now because the, the conceit of the, the play is that uh, a man, because of a post-apocalyptic world where the nukes have fallen, uh, one of the main characters transforms into a bed sitting room. He becomes a one person. He becomes a one room flat, and the main characters decide to live inside him. So it, it's farcical, <laughs> but. Um, I think because I've spent so much time here now because of lockdown uh, in my own little outdoor office, I'm starting to feel it's happening to me. Because now my, my, my wife says, "Where are you going?" I'm, I'm, I'm office, office. I'm off. I'm, have you started I, I talking know. to your wooden box yet? I guess that's the test, I, isn't it? It's more. It's, I'm more concerned with the fact I feel like it's talking to me, which is probably worse in the long <laughs> what run. What's it saying? Just, What's it saying? Uh, just, just like all right, it, it, it's bored as well, which is just really <laughs> quite depressing. <laughs> I'm having a very, very, very dull psychological break. So, um, well, uh, I'm yeah, not sure so if you're recommending this as a way to uh, help with uh, mental health. You should have an imaginary friend. Although well, I do, yeah. I'd get to go no back wrong. to your first object. That thing about the thick of it. What is even more brilliant, I think, is that the yes, yeah, I was brought up on yes minister and yes mm. prime minister, and that was 1978 that I think mm. those came out, and it's 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 still true. Apparently, humans <laughs> don't change. There's all these technological advances and the internet yeah. and you know spaceships and things and basically yeah. yes minister has still got it right technology <laughs> changes people don't so much so uh, yes um, that's probably a, probably a good rule of thumb brilliant all right well let us move on to dr susie gage who is a drug mental, mental health, health researcher, researcher, researcher and her book her great brilliant book uh, say why to drugs is out now and she also has a podcast susie how are you doing Hello. i am good thank you yes um, I think some people know that I'm imminently about to have a baby. So if I sort of look a bit pained, then that's probably why I've been living quite, it's quite uncomfortable. I've got to the very uncomfortable stage of pregnancy, but uh, but I'm really good. Brilliant. And what, and Trent did point out that having a baby during the question and answer points as the ultimate commitment to the cosmic shambles show and tell cause. But assuming <laughs> that the baby is not going to come in the next two minutes, what is the show and tell you've got for us? Well, I was going to show you my cat, but because um, I was thinking about things that are sort of helping me keep uh, keep my mental health positive during lockdown and that kind of thing. And my cat is just amazing. And he's he sort of keeps me company and gives affection sometimes. But while while you were doing the introduction, he crept in and I suddenly heard him drinking my glass of water that's on the floor next to me. So he's sort of not, not in my good books at the moment. But if the you want to have an idea of what he looks like, then this lucky cat <clears throat> on my piano here, um, my husband painted it so that it looks like our cat. And that was my birthday present a couple of years ago. But um, so that's, that's my cat. Caligula, his name is. That, <laughs> he sounded like a friendly cat until you said he was called Caligula. That, I think painting, the, painting, the, painting the, statue the statue like the cat is the perfect example of that, saying that dogs have owners and cats have staff. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how the baby and the cat are going to, you know, the relative, uh, relative yeah. importance in the house could be problematic. Well, the cat's been particularly loving recently, and I think it's because he's, he senses that something's about to change. Yeah. So he's trying to make sure we don't forget him. <laughs> about to get booted out. <laughs> well, or at least demoted by one. Um, brilliant. And we also have uh, Nav Kapoor, uh, who's, who's a professor of psychiatry, of psychiatry and population health at the University of Manchester. Nav, how are you doing? Today. I'm, I'm doing not too bad. 
distracted, uh, entertained and bewildered by events across the other side of the Atlantic. But, you know, it's good. It makes a bit of a, a, a welcome change from everything else that's going on. But I I'm did. Very- I did wake up this morning for the first time and I, I felt I should check. I should check the news. And then I realized I didn't have to check. <laughs> like, you know, that <laughs> feeling of like that thing when you look at your watch and you don't really look at your watch, but you, you keep, watch, but you keep looking at your watch. I feel like I'm now doing that. Like, what do I, I, mean, I must need to check something. <laughs> um, so what have you got? got to I've, got, I've got, I've got this fella here. Ooh. I've got this fella here. He, he's a, <clears throat> he's a, he's a Kathakali dancer from India. Um, and he, he illustrates the importance of kindness to mental health um, and also the importance of nonverbal communication in understanding human behavior. So, so, so basically, um, one of my students went to India and, and brought me this fella back and gave it to me, gave him to me as a gift. And um, that was really good for my mental health, that bit of kindness. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. It made me feel really good. Um, and then, I, then I had a closer look at him, and um, I had a, had a little look at him. And um, there's the name. His name is Beamer, and uh, Beamer is uh, one of the um, heroes from uh, the uh, Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. Um, and he's he's a strong man, and he bludgeons his enemies <laughs> rather than talks to them. Um, and I I reflected this was my student kind of. Uh, <laughs> Consciously or non-verbally communicating to me something about my uh, supervision stuff. So um, <laughs> kindness, uh, but also non-verbal communication. That is that thing about an iron fist in a velvet glove, isn't it? Right. <laughs> I think um, so. Carlo Ravelli, so uh, the physicist, has just written a book called "There Are Places in the World Where Kindness Is More Important Than the Rules," which I think. Whatever's in the book is quite a good title um, in general. I, I like that principle. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. We were going to get straight on with our questions because we are going to try to get through them all. I'm certain we, we won't succeed, but we're going to try. Um, we're going to start with a couple of specific ones. Um, oh, there's so many here. The, the, the mental health questions are so varied. Dean, first of all, there is a question for you from uh, Gilbert T., which says, and they're talking about the lockdowns. I guess a lot of these questions mm. do start with lockdown, lockdown course, number yes. two, although you in Wales have been here for a while. So <laughs> um, is it possible for people to get oxytocin withdrawal during something like this? Presumably lots of people aren't getting the same amount of stimulus. You know, they can't go to the pub, they can't go to concerts. Um, or is Netflix and the internet good <laughs> enough? <laughs> question. It's like, I think <clears throat> the idea of oxytocin withdrawal, it does sort of suggests an oversimplified view of how things kind of work mm. in the brain. I mean, neurotransmitters have these roles, but they don't have, I know, it, like, it's a, there was a thing a little while ago from like Silicon Valley, dopamine fasting. It's basically just a bit of self-restraint. It's just like showing a bit of, you know, disengage a bit, <laughs> but you have to give it a cool name. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's not a, such a chemical thing, but we are very social creatures, like uh, the oxytocin and vasopressin in men as well, these systems which coordinate our emotional attachments and engagements and enhance and amplify them yeah they won't be getting as used when you're completely cut off from you know your friends and family and your wider community it's um it's not it's not, it's not necessarily a damaging thing in that you know these things tend to bounce back the brain is a lot more resilient a lot more flexible and people often give it credit for us and you know a few months you know, this bad thing happens but then when things go back to quote-unquote normal then you could expect to see some recovery, quite a, quite a lot perhaps in that respect. But yeah, so there will be a definite case of we are not engaging our social 
the process is as much as we would like to be because we are, we are an incredibly social species and a lot of the brain is dedicated to that. And so things like online communication like this, uh, it can be a useful stopgap. I don't think it's necessarily a complete replacement because there is so much that humans give off in their just, you know, in, in their physical form. Like body language is such a big part of communication. As Nav said, like you know, non-verbal communication is a really big deal on the emotional level, on the well-being level, the communication level. And the technology now is a lot better than it was. I mean, the idea of doing this 10 years ago even is kind of frightening. Uh, but we have at least some connections now. But yeah, it's not uh, it's not a complete adequate replacement. It's sort of like having refined sugar instead of fruits and things. Like it gives you energy, it gives you some stuff you need, but it's not great. Uh, you know, it doesn't cover all the bases. But it'll do for now. Um, so yeah. So do so we I know? Think, are yeah. there any sort of long term? I mean, to any of you, are there any sort of long term consequences? Do we know anything about? I guess this is the experiment going on right now. But do we know anything about if you take away those social interactions? What what happens to you? I mean, I've certainly. I yeah. mean, I've certainly. Yeah. Is anyone does anyone know of any research on that? Are there any long term consequences, or do you just kind of it goes down for a bit, but then, like Dean says, it just goes back up and it's all right? Well, again, you have to uh, by most psychological standards, solitary confinement in prison, being cut off from other human beings, is literally recognised as a form yeah. of torture. We just do not handle it well at all. So we know it's bad in that respect, at least. It, it, it's bad. It's bad for you, Helen, as you've kind of surmised. And, you know, there are parallels from the um, incarceration kind of literature, but it but it but it is different. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of unquestionable. But but Dean raises a really important point, which is we mustn't reduce mental health to individual neurotransmitters, individual hormones or, or anything like that. That's quite kind of reductionist. But the but the overall point is one of the things we should be doing for our mental health is is making sure we're getting that kind of social stimulus in you know as as dean says uh, it might be a kind of diluted form but it's really important to keep those social connections going during um this time and um you know i've got i've got mixed feelings about doing you know all my socializing over over my computer but but hey you know but let, we'll, we'll get through this and uh, it's time limited yeah and of course oxytocin has loads, loads of, other of other roles as well as Sadly. those roles so, i mean yes it's really important in childbirth so <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like you're all you're you're well well you're obviously you're well educated, but you're well prepared for what's been going on inside your body completely beyond your control. Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, well, let's move on to uh, a question for you, Susie. But the origin of this, I think this is more for you, although Nav might like to comment because it comes from something he said uh, last time in the first uh, first version of this discussion, which is that. Um, Nav, you said that we're seeing lower numbers of suicide linked to the pandemic and, and lockdown depression. And, and the question for Susie is, if suicide and things like that have gone down, has there been any increase in drug use, you know, substance abuse? Um, clearly, it's slightly difficult to monitor if everyone's locked away and you can't see what they're doing. But do we know anything about the patterns in, in substance use? It's definitely something that people have been looking at during lockdown. Yeah. Um, so I've been involved in some research around alcohol use during lockdown and there's been quite a lot of other stuff uh, published looking at alcohol as well and this has found some really interesting patterns that it's not universal it's not that everyone's drinking more or everyone's drinking less there seem to be these sort of diverging patterns and people who usually drink a little bit seem to be reporting drinking less during lockdown and people who usually drink more 
are reporting, and this is obviously on average at a population level, there's lots of variation, but people who usually drink more seem to be drinking even more during lockdown. Or certainly this was true in the first couple of months. Obviously, this research takes a while to, you have to collect the data and then analyse it. And so we're just now beginning to see the data that was collected right at the beginning of lockdown. And I think it's potentially possible that the first few months of lockdown or of coronavirus or of, of the whole world changing are quite different to how things are going to be going forward in the future as well. But the, but these patterns seem to have come out of a few completely different data sets. So suggesting that this is this is quite a established pattern, certainly along in the beginning of lockdown anyway. And in terms of other illicit drug use, yeah, it's difficult to monitor, but people have been doing it in some really ingenious ways. So there's been a lot of qualitative studies conducted either by interviews or um, we've done some research where we looked at Reddit forums where people discuss their drug use and sort of scraped a load of posts off Reddit and analysed themes that come out of that and found that people, for example, who are in recovery from um, dependence or problematic substance use can potentially find it really, really challenging when lockdown started that a lot of the ways in which people dealt with cravings and that kind of things were taken away from them. So it would be go and see a friend, go for a walk, go and do some exercise. You know, some of the things that we just couldn't do during the first lockdown in particular. So that can be really, really challenging. But also some people found that the change in their circumstances really led them to think about reevaluating lots of other things in their lives as well. So it was very individual types of patterns. And another way to look at whether substance use is changing is wastewater analysis. So I think this is really cool. <laughs> you, you examine the wastewater and look for the um, metabolites of different substances in wastewater. And these seem to suggest that sort of party drug use has gone right down, as you might expect. Um, cannabis use seems to have gone up a little bit maybe but cannabis use when you interview people seems to show the same pattern of as alcohol use that people who were using cannabis a little bit tended to be using it a bit less during lockdown and people who were using cannabis a bit more tended to start using it maybe even more during lockdown so there's really quite complicated patterns and yeah. I don't think we know loads yet at the moment but there does seem to be, yeah, these sort of interesting findings. I think the wastewater information is so fascinating. So I have a, a Thames monitor, a project monitor in the Thames, and we had um, some chemists come from the University of Portsmouth, I think, and, and they were talking about, you know, you can basically tell when it's Friday because yeah. there are overflows into the Thames. And, you know, they were, they were not specific about exactly the positions on the river that they were coming from. But, you know, you can tell it's Friday because of what's in the water. Um, now, did you have something to yeah, add? Yeah, so say, um, that what, we've, what we're seeing at the moment from the worldwide literature is no evidence of the feared increase in suicide rates that we were all worried about. So um, it would be incorrect to say there's been a fall. There has been perhaps a fall in, in certain areas, a kind of social cohesion effect. But the important message is no evidence of the feared rise at the moment. Um, I mean, we need to be very mindful of that. It's going to be different in different places. And when the economic consequences of all this bite, we might see further mental health effects. But that that's really positive. And the other thing that Susie said that I think is really important is the variability of all this. It has different effects on different people. And as we talked about briefly last time, for, for some people, you know, lockdown one, they, they actually reported it being a positive experience, about a third of people. And other 
other people found it very, very difficult. So that you've got this this challenge of the variability, uh, but at the moment we're not seeing those impacts. So I think the the drug misuse kind of stuff is is absolutely fascinating. There there is some data from the states that suggested that um, drug overdoses um, uh, in people using habitually using recreational drugs may have gone up during the first bit of the lockdown. You know that was that was the US, not here. Um, but this is something you know we need to be keeping a close eye on really. Um, well, that takes us very nicely, very nicely on to the next question from an anonymous person. But perhaps, Nav, you can start with this yeah. and then we'll move on to the others, um, which is about the potential positive effects of lockdown. Um, so this person says they have severe social anxiety and the whole thing's been a relief because they don't have to worry about uh, how they're going to deal. You know, the next time they're going to have to do something which gives them anxiety. And and so the question is about the scope of potential positive impacts and also which she then follows on that if during lockdown things got easier for people with social anxiety when lockdown goes away the world's all coming back yeah. um what do we know about all of that i mean I, th I think there's there's two issues there the first is for people with you know perhaps specific psychological health problems and how that might have affected them and yeah i've heard this um you know from a few people it's not just people with social anxiety people with uh, um, ocd obsessional compulsive disorder other people have, have said we've we've actually found this you know, a bit easier because we've not got had to go out. We've not had to have that social contact. We've not had to go to work. So for, for some people, it has been um, it has been easier because they haven't had to do the things they find difficult in their everyday life. Um, for other people, it's been a positive thing because they've been able to do the things they haven't had time to do um, during, you know, our busy, mad everyday lives, you know, things like spending a bit more time with the family, things like just just taking a kind of step out. I mean, you know, that, that was one of the things that I really noticed in the early part of lockdown, just how life kind of slowed down. And I, I, I think some of those things, there's, there's almost a, a kind of cultural learning to all this that I think, you know, we can take forward positively when, um, when all this is over. When it all comes back, um, I don't think it's all suddenly going to come back All the evidence, so, you know, the, how, how we've been um, uh, progressing over the last few months, you know, suggests that any return is going to be incremental. And I think that will be helpful for people who might find the return to, you know, so-called normal life kind of challenging. It will be um, incremental. And, and you know, we, we have kind of learned things while we've been in um, in uh, in this period of kind of societal lockdown that I think we can we can take forward so I think I think you know it, it's going to be gradual I don't think there's going to be a sudden return and um, Dean do you have any thoughts about the negative and positive impacts of lockdown yeah it's actually something that's come up a lot like now says I've heard plenty of people say this is actually they're quite a, not happy about the situation but you know, it's easier for them than before lockdown was the case and you can sort of see many different factors which would lead into that i mean one thing a number of these studies i've seen which are monitoring the general health mental health population since this all started is that adolescent mental health which you'd expect perhaps to be the most heavily impacted by not being able to see their friends not going to school being stuck indoors with their parents at all times hasn't actually changed that much at all in terms of the levels but you can also see the flip side of well, no, maybe now teens are finally getting as, you know, the sleep they need, which they, which they rarely ever do because of the adolescent shift and you know, how the world works. They don't get enough sleep and um, you know, they're allowed to use their phones and tablets more, which is obviously a constant cause, source of stress to their parents. But now they have no alternative. So you can see that. But also, you know, societal factors, the whole thing of the, the classic fear of missing out, FOMO, is not necessarily an issue right now. Like something 
when you're an adolescent especially like your social psychology is such a big part of it your social awareness your wanted to belong you know fear of being left out and not part of the group is a big concern during your late teens and early like adulthood but that's not an issue right now because no one's doing anything of any interest so you can't really miss out on that and anything that's happened has happened online so maybe you get to feel more included and is also the thing of you know the, the modern world has a lot of stresses which involve like things that you're responsible for you have to do this for your work you have to progress in that and like these have all been taken away for at least temporarily as in well my job's not going anywhere but that's not my fault right now because no one's in work i can't do anything and it's not my fault and i think that you, you can't really underestimate how big a relief that can be in a lot of cases of someone with anxiety or even if low level not even clinical just general overly stressed low level anxiety things like that can be alleviated somewhat by just the knowledge that yeah. whatever's happening isn't down to you and that's a, that's a big load off for a lot of people oh go on Susie did you have something to add yeah well, I just I yeah, think well, I just I think I don't know whether other people found this but I found over the summer when restrictions were lifted I found that quite a difficult time where some people were going out every night and going to the pub and that kind of thing mm. and particularly people who were in higher risk groups probably weren't doing that Susie, you're not talking about me are you <laughs> myself actually but that that's where i think it's potentially challenging um when when things do start to change and that's when i think like sort of fear of missing out and worrying about being left out of social groups and that kind of thing if we do end up and i'm hoping that we won't with this kind of divided society where people who feel like they're low risk can go out all the time and people who are worried that they're higher risk feel like they shouldn't be going out i think that's potentially when problems could arise in terms yeah. of in terms of anxiety and, and that sort of thing well, I think that's what they keep saying about good, you know, good government messaging, and that the certainty a lot more helpful than uncertainty. This yeah. thing of like, it's like sixteen different tier levels. Like some of them you can go to the pub yeah. at nine fifty-three p.m., but no later. Like what, what? Like you don't know what the situation is. That can be a lot more stressful than just knowing, even if it's worse. Like, yeah. No, you can't. It's much more reassuring than. Eh, you know. We don't really know. Do what yeah. you want. Yeah. And yeah. uh, Nav, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I mean the the uncertainty. Um, and the relentlessness uh, will, you know, are, are not good for mental health. I just wanted to pick up on one thing Dean said, and he's absolutely right. You know, for some kids, you know, it's uh, withdrawal from social contact might be might be quite helpful. Um, on average, one of the things we do know is, unfortunately, kids' levels of psychological health have, have gone down and down a bit. There was a, a big survey in the UNS a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> what was interesting, I think, in particular about that survey is uh, mental health was worse um, in um, kids um whose household had you know challenged challenging financial situations but a challenging financial environment made lockdown made all this worse for kids um, and the other thing that made things worse for kids that mental health was worse in kids who didn't get support from school as well so if we're thinking about our kids mental health you know they're, they're two really important things we can do um well we'll just carry on that a little bit because sarah dove asked the question a little bit about the impact, the on, impact on children's development, but also how do we understand the potential long-term impacts of this? Um, who can comment on that now? Is that one for you? Um, I, I, I can I can start and, and then someone else can come up with a sensible answer. I think, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I was struck yesterday, I was, I was having a wander around uh, my bit of South Manchester, and there are quite a lot of, you know, young kids being pushed around in their buggies. And for some of them, and for some friends' kids as well, they've 
they've missed out on that. You know, it's just the level at which they're going to come out. They're going to start playing with their mates, but they haven't been able to do it. And, you know, certainly one or two people have contacted me. They're a bit kind of worried about that. Um, the first mm. thing to say is that kids... Um, uh, kids are incredibly kind of resilient, and and um, so for the majority of them, they're just gonna they're gonna bounce back from this. So a bit of kind of lack of social contact early on won't, I think, for most kids have um, uh, poor, you know, have have long term effects. Um, for for the other things, you know, for me, you know, I've got three kids; they're teenagers now, so the opposite end from um, Susie. Um, but for them, you know, the key things are going to be making sure they still go to school. So understand, you know, mitigating any long term effects by that. Um, sporting activities, kind of exercise, and the connectedness, and that's a double edged sword. They they're not seeing their mates in person; they're seeing them online. But maintaining those things, I think, will help mitigate the effect on on kids kind of development i think that's what we should be looking at really yeah it's really important and i think one of the things that's really difficult is we are we don't get to know about the long-term effects yet however what we can do is learn from this to look to the future so what what is happening right now is basically a natural experiment and, and in epidemiology we've used these kind of natural experiments in the past where something and it's usually something awful something happens to a population and you can you can collect data during that time and learn from it and think about things in the future so there have been examples in the past where things like famine have happened in certain places or even when changes in policy happen and different populations experience different things so while it's 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 not a very useful answer for right now what i really hope is that we <clears throat> learn things from this because a pandemic could happen again like i mean it's difficult to talk about that now when we're in the middle of one i don't really want to be there uh, come on susie we're supposed to be cheering people up <laughs> As I was saying this, I was like, keep it light. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, we have this great opportunity to actually learn things to help us in the future. And I really hope that we do that. Well, let's, there's another question here. We'll move on a little, on bit. A little bit to um, another anonymous question, which is, which is a really interesting thing. And it's kind of about coming out of this a little bit. But the, and the question says, we've already, we've already done one lockdown and that was much more severe than this one. But this person says, although we're prepared this time, we know what to expect and this lockdown isn't as strict, they're finding it much harder psychologically. Now, I think you've touched on some of the reasons for this, but why, why might the second one, the less extreme one, be harder than the first one? Um, Dean? Um, that might be that you know, the first one, again, it was all new, it was all novel, and there was the sense of camaraderie, you know, we're all in this together and stuff, and that's been very, very you know, firmly eroded away in many ways by various social political factors. So, that's again, very it's, diplomatic of you, well, done. yes, I know, I don't want to <laughs> point fingers, but I will if, if it comes down to it. Go but, on, <laughs> what? well, like. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not sure what that achieves, but okay. But, um, but yeah, but it's um, anyway. So it's a lot more. We know a lot more now. So like you, you can look at this as saying like, oh well, we know who's going to do what, and like this is bad. It shouldn't have come to this. There's also that. But I think there's a big part of it of when you come out of the first lockdown. I think there was a genuine sense of oh well, that's it now. We've done our thing. Yeah. Uh, once you know, once it starts happening again, then you're like, well, there's, there's nothing to say now that this is this is the final one this could become i think when you got a second example it becomes like far more accepted as the new normal whereas the previous lockdown however strict it was like this is weird but we'll get through it and this one is like oh so this is my life now and that's that's a lot more of a bleak or a lot less uh, satisfying uh, and a lot less 
a positive outlook to have, but it's sort but, of kind of inevitable. They never show that bit in the movies, do they? It's, it's always the first bit of drama. And then, I mean, the, mm. the cultural stories we tell are that a thing happens and then it stops happening. Yeah, yeah definitely. And also, like, in, in, like, the Simpsons even made jokes about it when they're trying to get the, like, the bathroom door open once, they hanging through, it didn't work, and trying to get something else. So then the doors open, and at least they said, how do you do that? Because... I use the coat hanger again. I don't understand why we only ever try things once. And it's like, you know, it's, a, it's a common thing in mainstream media yeah. that you do it once, it's done, then you go do something else. But that's no, not. No how one it makes works. a movie about, uh, you know, there was no Contagion 2, for example. You know, it's, <laughs> no, exactly. it's, it's, <laughs> I think the other thing was like spring and um, the yeah, sun yeah. was shining constantly. And we could go outside even if it was just for an hour. Um, so it, it was at least the world was bright. Whereas you look out the window now and you're like, oh, God, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's raining again. It's grey. It's dark when I wake up and it's dark when I go to sleep. I mean, not quite, but, you know, um, it's yeah, it's it's yeah. not it's not spring anymore. <laughs> It's really my job to be the upbeat one. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And and I'm very sorry that, um, you know, um, the person that's written in with the question, yeah, I know people who found this much harder second time around. But, you know, just like from the medical point of view, we, we know about treatments. We're much better at treating COVID-19. I would argue that on the whole, you know, we're more prepared for the, some of the kind of psychological aspects. You know, it's not going to be as strange you know, queuing up at the supermarket, wearing masks, we're all used to that now. Uh, we, we've we've taken some time, many of us, to kind of find out what works for us, you know, whether it's a bit of exercise, whether it's a bit of mindfulness, whether it's um, other things, you know, the importance of kind of eating well. We know the shops aren't going to run out of food. Um, so I think uh, for, for some people, definitely the relentlessness, the uncertainty, the the fact that it's been repeated. But, but you know, I, th I think on the whole, we'll we'll get through this, actually, and, and hopefully we'll manage it even better than we did lots. So we are going to move on. Oh God, we're going to move on from COVID a little bit. But just before we do that, could I ask each of you for one or two tips that for you know the second lockdown? As you said, it's the winter. Here we go again. It's all a bit rubbish. Brexit's coming. Um, what 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 coping strategies? That maybe not the obvious ones, but what are the little things either that you found helpful or that you you really recommend to other people? Um, Susie, do you want to go first? It is going walking, like getting out of the house every day. Um, I think also something that we should probably all be doing during the sort of autumn winter kind of time is taking vitamin D supplements as well. Like it, it, it is actually recommended by the NHS, although I don't think many people know that, that we during the sort of winter months, particularly if you live in the north of England, like I do, um, it can be really helpful. Um, but yeah, trying to get at least some sunlight in the day is something I find helpful. Um, rescheduling those Zoom quizzes, that kind of thing. It's tough when you when you do a job where you're constantly on video calls all day, and and like that's the work that I do. So I I know what it's like to have seven hours of Zoom meetings in a day, and the last thing you really want to do is get on a video call in the evening. But whenever I do to speak to friends, it always makes me feel better. So I think keeping that communication and actually seeing people as well, um, that's what I find really helpful. Okay, top tips, uh, Nav. Top tips, uh, Nav. Um, for me, it's really been um, the acknowledgement that some days are not going to be very good and some days I'm not going to feel absolutely great. And actually the realisation that some days I'm not going to feel so good um, is quite a helpful one in some ways because I get I get through that day and then the next day is a bit better. And it's one of the things that, you know, we've talked about in our kind of university department as well, that, you know, sometimes you're going to have bad days and that's 
that's right. Um, the other thing I've I've found I've found really helpful um, is is um, you know it's there's a there's a, a, a kind of basis a therapeutic basis for it. It's got activity scheduling. So it's basically you know if you've got some tasks, rather than putting them off, actually trying to do them because once I've managed a couple of tasks in the morning it's much easier then to get going so that that kind of activity scheduling has been really helpful for me brilliant and dean don't um, the tone <coughs> again but i'm finding this lockdown somewhat <laughs> easier because you know i haven't lost any close family members this time around which is usually a good step up but um <laughs> the i think sort of echoes nav's recommendation that i'm finding it does help if you have plans and not even just necessarily tasks like don't sort of think right I'm in lockdown but now I'm gonna you know that means I'm on limbo my life is frozen if you can make any sort of plan even if it's like a small scale thing or if it's like you know just a short project which shows like you haven't this hasn't been wasted time this hasn't been your life on pause just having some sort of landmark in your head you can say right I've done that this whole period was me doing this so I'm working towards that now so it doesn't seem like it's you know everything's in stasis everything's on hold just a sense of progress can be quite helpful in terms of well again this is a lockdown but you know, I'm getting through it and sometimes you know, I think oh god I've, I've only got a week left of lockdown I better, better get this done and it becomes more like a normal normal job which maybe you don't want but you can <laughs> so, so I'm going to use that to go on to a question which actually came for me which actually but, came for me but is relevant to what you just said and um, in the first apparently the first lockdown science shambles none of us can quite remember how long ago that was but it's a long time um, I apparently said that uh, I wasn't feeling too worried because it was very much like life at sea and the questioner is wondering if I still feel like that after seven to eight months but one of the things that I said at the time about back in March which you just reminded me of is that when you're at sea you know you're on a ship basically Week, days of the week don't matter you're just there you eat dinner in the same place every day you see the same people every day your routine you work every day because you're not you're not going to have weekends when you've got this kind of special time on the ship even if you're there for two months but one of the things that um we do do at sea especially for the longer voyages is exactly what dean just said is we create things so every saturday on the last the last time or time before i went to sea um we would have a sort of special dinner and it wasn't particularly special dinner because it was still the ship but everyone <laughs> you know you know they put they put a table they found a tablecloth from somewhere and everyone put on a slightly nicer shirt and it was that was the saturday dinner and and those things that mark time i think those are really important because if you feel like you're drifting then then you're then it really gets really hard and then certainly at sea those you you and the thing the thing that's interesting about doing it at sea is that it's it's obviously entirely artificial right it's so obvious that you are making this up um like we got to there was like an anniversary when i was on odin of the 30 years since that ship had been the first non-nuclear icebreaker to get to the north pole it doesn't matter at all and the captain yeah. was like right we're having a drinks party because that's a swedish way of dealing with everything <laughs> um, and that was before the silly hat party and the crayfish party and the various other and some of the times the scientists were like what what are they up to now these swedish people but those things are really like those markers in time that's really it's not just the markers as well that, that that's a really uh cracking kind of point really it's it's about um and and we've tried to do this i've tried to do this with varying degrees of success in my household but it's just trying to introduce a bit of variety into 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 life so i've dusted off the old kind of projector and and we try and have movie night and you know most nights um i'm the only person in our kind of makeshift cinema in our top room but but hey you know it, it's it's um trying to introduce that kind of element of variety in what would otherwise be 
very mundane and, and routine and, and just being creative. So I, I love your um, I loved your drinks party and, and suggestions <laughs> for how you make things special. I think that's really important. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, well, and so to answer that, so I still do feel the same way about lockdown. It is like life at sea. But I tell you what I miss, actually, is that at sea, the thing that is very different for me is that at sea, you are working with a very close knit group of people. You have a very strong, immediate community. You're the only people in your world but you still have 10 of them or 30 of them or whatever it is. And you get to know each other really well. Just even people you've never met before, you just become, an, you know, part. you become this little village. And that's the one thing that I notice about the lockdowns is that actually the village, the, the village doesn't really exist, at least for me, in the same. I know some people who've got streets and, you know, they've got people who come out on their streets and they've all got to know each other. And it works a little bit like that. But I've the hardest thing is is not having that really tight because if you've got a really tight community you sort of don't need anything else and that has been different okay let's move on to some other questions about general uh, mental health so we're going to we're going to go to a very different type of question but i really like this question mm. and this is really interesting and i suspect that this person heard uh, chris boardman on desert island disc the other week because i think he addressed this and the questioner says can you explore the levels of acceptability of obsession in elite and extreme sport versus obsessional behaviors in other aspects of life and they point out that if we you know an athlete is standing on the podium getting a gold medal at the olympics everyone says oh they're very dedicated that's a brilliant thing but if someone has um a you know an obsession with a repetitive behavior for example that is seen as a detriment and yet if the obsessional behavior was getting on a cycling track then you know there's a fine yeah. line there how where's that where does that divide come and, and what should and shouldn't be acceptable who's gonna go i'm gonna pick, pick who um dean <laughs> it's fine yeah well, I think it's a really good question because it sort of gets really down to the bedrock of what counts as a mental health problem or a mental disorder, however you want to talk about it. Because I, I, it's in my current book, it's um, it's really hard to sort of pin down exactly where mental health goes from being okay to not okay. You know, there's no fine line there. Like, it's not like with physical ailments. I know it's a lot more ambiguous than people think. But if your elbow's facing the wrong way, if your skin's turned yellow and you're leaking pus you're like well that's not meant to be happening is it that's probably a bad thing but it's kind of hard to make that judgment call when it comes to mental health stuff uh, so we have like a lot of parameters in place because the mental health or the mental performance of someone is a lot more uh, whether it's good or not or whether it counts as acceptable or unacceptable or bad or good or helpful and unhelpful it's a lot more of a social construct and that can change over time like i think i mentioned it last time but so in the 1970s that homosexuality was declassified as a mental illness and you know we all don't we don't think that's the case anymore but that was the accepted standard for a while and it's sort of like basing your parameters for what is good or bad mental health uh, on social norms sort of like anchoring your boat to a cow you know it's it's big and solid but it's going to wander off eventually and then you're going to be in a different place and that's that depends on the boat and the cow well exactly I mean, yes but <laughs> but but regarding this particular question, it's like um, one of the things that say, you know, how do you define whether someone's mental behavior or like actions are good or bad is like, are they maladaptive? As in, do they do you any damage? Do you do any harm to yourself or to your society? And with some a lot of sessions, yes, they do. As in, someone with OCD who cannot stop classic washing their hands, you know, that's very common now, I suppose, but or cannot stop flicking light switches, that impinges on their life. It makes it worse. It makes it, it's a problem for them to fix. Whereas, Someone on the cycle track, constantly spending all day in the gym, is, by our standards, improving their life, improving their abilities, making themselves fitter and healthier and stronger and faster. 
So we don't recognize that as being a problem because it's it's a, it's beneficial to them. It's not maladaptive. And again, I guess at the root cause, that's the main difference in someone with an obsession disorder is doing things which aren't helpful. Someone directing that sort of obsession to sport or self-achievement is being helpful to themselves and society by the values we impinge on it. So, yeah, that's where the sort of that's where the main difference lies, as far as I could uh, as far as I could tell you. Well, let's come to Susie first and then Nav can maybe round these two things up. So Susie, um, how, how does this work, especially with taking, uh, I, I mean, drugs is a loaded word in some ways, but substances, because, you know, you read back, there was a period when taking laudanum was a very fashionable thing to do in London society. And, you know, a period in the 60s when LSD and these things were the height, if you wanted to, wanted be, to be a great, be a great creative, creative artist, you were high on everything all the time. How how does this interact? When is it? How do we? When is it good and when is it bad? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was, I was when I saw this question, it made me think about addiction science because it's sort of the way we kind of define, or one possible way of defining addiction is when your life has been knocked off course by your relationship with, well, usually a substance, but it doesn't have to be a substance. So it could also be something like gambling, or potentially it could be anything. It could be exercise, or it could be. Um, going on the cycling tracker you know it could be playing the drums it could be whatever um it's where your life has been knocked off kilter so your personal relationships your work or your ability to um to sort of progress your life the way you want it to be i guess and i think that sometimes these kind of um extreme sporting behaviors could potentially fall into that trap if you're if you're going to the cycling trap tracks so much that you are your family relationships or your um emotional relationships well, if, if you speak to any olympic athlete they will absolutely say that their family relationships have suffered like almost universally <laughs> in my experience there is potentially a way that that could be maladaptive it, it's 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 mm. adaptive in some ways and maladaptive in other ways and i think yeah culture cultural expectation has a huge impact on this as well as you say mm. like we think about the way we treat alcohol compared to the way we treat other drugs in terms of acceptability and a lot a lot of the ways in which people interact with alcohol are probably extremely maladaptive and yet you sort of you have to get much further down that path before it's seen as a problem compared to how it would if it was another substance that's currently illicit and maybe caffeine is also relevant here in that pretty much all of us who drink coffee are dependent on caffeine and yet I don't think anyone really sees that as a problem because is it really maladaptive well people are I, proud of it aren't they they're proud yeah, of being I mean, i'm not a coffee drinker actually i like the smell of it but i've never don't like the bitterness of the taste but it always it always i feel like i walk into coffee conversations with this extreme nervousness because people are exceptionally proud of and i think a lot of the um i don't know this is just my own little thing but i think a lot of the the you know the pride in the best coffee and knowing the best coffee is basically covering up the behavior because if they're turning it into a virtue that they that they're coffee connoisseurs, then they don't have to face up to how much of the stuff they're drinking. <laughs> Maybe I'm being mean. <laughs> yes, yes, you're being mean, Helen. Sorry. No, no, coffee drink of any chance. comes in is how much do people spend on their coffee. Like you're, you're ultimately you're sort of potentially that could be problematic if you get into a real coffee habit. Um, yeah. Nav, what do you think about obsession? 
when does obsession yeah, no, so um, I think it's absolutely fascinating so um, it, it's about it's partly about illness as a social construct so both Dean and Susie have been talking about basically when it when it kind of is bad either Dean you was talking about well societally kind of bad we think it's kind of maladaptive but also personally bad so if I'm doing something and it's actually making me feel miserable then then it's a bit of a problem uh, whereas actually you know the other other bit of that is 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 very kind of goal directed but it's um, it, it's a kind of social construct, but also it kind of varies over. So it's this idea of impairment, but it also kind of varies over time, which I think is fascinating, which suggests if it varies over time, it's not a kind of solid construct. This is not a cast iron construct. There's an element of subjectivity uh, about this. But probably the most important thing is how, um, if you like, traits that in some circumstances can be not good, can be maladaptive, can in other senses be be really helpful. And that isn't just obsessions, it's other things as well that, you know, sometimes we, we look at, you know, these psychological things purely in terms of disorder. That's 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 wrong, because actually sometimes these psychological traits can be helpful. Well, let's move on to one of those. So we have a question here from Eileen Cheng, who's a long-time patron supporter. And she, uh, when you're talking about behaviours that are compulsive, I would say for our producer Trent and Robin, the organising shows is pretty much a compulsion. <laughs> and um, so Eileen has asked a question about uh, how organising, producing and hosting a non-stop live 24-hour show will affect your mental health and how they might or should cope with it. So um, there's a lot in there. <laughs> I certainly were like, you know, when Trent told me, I was like, oh, of course you're going to do that. Yep. Right. Um, you're going to regret that. He swears they're not. Um, but Susie, coping mechanisms, let's deal with the coping mechanisms first. What, like, how do people use coping, coping mechanisms and how should, how much we should we rely on them when we have a big thing like that to get ready for? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really good question. And um, when when I spoke to Trent about it, the thing that he said is coffee. So <laughs> come back to caffeine again, um, <laughs> stimulants basically to help them stay awake. But I think um, one of the things that's going to be really important, like at least you know the finite length of time it's going to take. I mean, although having said that, this is shambles, so it's obviously going to overrun. But <laughs> but you know you know roughly the parameters, so you know how long you have to keep going for. And I think that's incredibly helpful when you've got to do a really difficult or sort of endurance task, is knowing, in a way, it's kind of easier than some sort of, like, marathon type thing where you know the length of it if you know the time of it you know exactly how long you've got to keep going for and also that something that they've done that I, that, that I think is incredibly important when you're doing something like this is to have a strong team that you trust and you know and you that you're a sort of this core group who can work together and you know that you can work together and you know that you can you kind of know that you can do it. I think that's going to be incredibly important for the Shambles team for this event. But yeah, I mean, rather them than me. <laughs> Dean, what are the mental health implications of, of even trying to do something like that? Uh, well, I don't know, this is an odd situation because you're trying to ask me to, you know, to use Trent and Robin as normal subjects, which I would never even deign to do because that's clearly a ridiculous question. Um, it, 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 it's one of those things like, you know, it, I don't think, well, I know that they have done this before, but I'm not sure how much you know, things like this have happened. I know there have been like 24 hour or like five day long nonstop radio uh, marathon sessions and things like that. So I don't know if they have any particular aspects of that. Um, obviously, sleep deprivation is uh, not necessarily a good thing, but from Robin's output, he doesn't sleep much anyway, so it's not really an issue. And yeah, I think um, 
I'm not sure about coping mechanisms, but I think one of the main things with obviously they put these big huge shows on anyway, and perhaps one of the main reasons you get through this and keep coming back to it and enjoy it so much is because the results are immediate. Like then you go on stage, you say something, the audience laughs, the audience reacts positively, then you can see the people there. You know that what you're doing has an impact, has a consequence, and therefore you know, your efforts are validated and justified, and they feel like you've you know they've been spent wisely. That could be more of a challenge here because obviously it's a remote show. There's going to be, I know they might have some audience there, but it's not going to be anywhere near like the usual output. So I would think I would encourage anyone who wants to sort of support the effort to you know, send feedback to confirm, like, yes, I'm enjoying this. This is great. Please, please, you know, you're not even necessarily so even if they're not enjoying it, even if they're yeah, not exactly. enjoying it. Otherwise, you're a bad it. person. You're causing sure someone Robert's harm. So, yes. <laughs> so this is officially recommended. That our oh, yeah. mental health panel please talk to us while these shows are going <laughs> yeah, up because yeah. we'd like to know you're there and it is it's definitely and when we did the albert the one that was meant to be at the albert hall sea shambles back in may and i was sitting next door just talking to a screen for four hours and it was it was tiring in a way that the other one wasn't yes. and because i was just talking to myself um now what, what go on yeah, no, no. So look, you've got to all be prepared. So you're not going to do this. But in the week beforehand, you know, be extra nice to yourself, make sure you get loads of sleep. You know, this, this thing is coming. And actually, it's going to be really good for your mental health, because you're going to have this huge thing you're all kind of working towards. So the the prep, I think, is key. Um, the other thing you talked about, which I was struck by, is this kind of, you know, pretend you're all at sea, the kind of siege mentality. It's you, Robin and Trent against the world. You know, that, that kind of cohesion. And then the other thing is, you know, just just be nice to each other and, and, and support each other. But I, I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's exciting. And I think overall it will have positive effects for all of your mental health. As long as people, um, A, you know, donate lots of money to charity and B, give you loads of positive feedback. Well, thank you for doing the plug for I don't have to. Um, we're going to move on to, uh, so I, I think we, we might have some way of assessing not mental health, but tiredness. I think we might have a, a guest who's going to, it, just keep an eye on Robin as it's going along. Uh, so, yes. Um, so we've got a live question from uh, the the question feed or someone like that from James Whitney. Um, and this is going back to slightly more serious things. But so a quick answer would be great. Um, what are the biggest gaps in mental health services at the moment? What are the problems? I mean, we're all becoming more aware of mental health during the pandemic. Where are the gaps? Susie, well, on. in terms of my field, that there have been really big problems with drug services being cut in recent years. Um, drug services, smoking cessation services, all of this kind of thing have all really been cut. And there's also a bit of a problem in that quite often substance misuse problems and mental health problems co-occur at higher rates than mm -hmm. you would expect. And what has historically happened is if you've got this co-occurring problems you can't it's harder to get treatment for either because the mental health services want you to sort out your substance use before that they, they will um work with you and the substance use services want you to sort out your mental health before they'll work with you and this is getting better we're learning much more about these treatments but they require specialist sort of interventions and and with services being cut these are harder and harder to find so that's sort of a purely selfish that's my area of research but it's something that we are lacking uh, dean where do you see the, the gaps, gaps being um i can not know it's particularly specific but i think it always boils down to just simply not enough people to provide the services we need in that too you know you get a lot of the um <clears throat> you know like the the punditry say about your mental health problems aren't really that bad it's all about 
an, an attempt to push, push meds on people. And I don't you know, there's an argument to be had there for the influence of pharmaceutical industries in mental health care. But uh, the bottom line is, like, you know, massively overstretched mental uh, medical service, like, uh, like the NHS, you got the choice of either, you know, you can either give someone six weeks worth of like one hour a week or talking therapy sessions with a trained professional one on one, or you can give them a box of pills, which I, I happen to have already on hand. And that's sort of that's going to become the more obvious route because we're, it's a question of you can either wait six or seven months to speak to someone who's trained to do this over many, many years. And while they're doing that with you, they can't do it with anyone else. Or you can have a box of pills, which is going to you know, potentially could fix or fix or help matters. But I think, you know, we so much of our mental health therapies are. Human-led, person-led, like they, they require interaction and engagement with a trained professional, and we just don't have enough of those at the moment. And we could stand to have a lot more. And mm -hmm. Nav, where do you see the gaps? Um, I mean, basically, um, I mean, basically, I think there's three things. First is access. So if I'm psychologically unwell, can I get the access to the treatments I need? The second thing for me is transitions. So when people move from one bit of the service to the other, does information get lost? Are things handed over? They can be quite risky periods. And the third thing for me as a kind of mental health researcher is implementation. So there's brilliant mental health research that goes on out uh, there. One of the things I've, I've kind of joked about is actually I'm going to stop doing any research and focus on implementing stuff now um just to kind of reassure people you know we're well aware of this and we, we are trying to work hard to kind of uh, plug those gaps so we're not just sitting on our hands but yeah you're right there, there are significant problems but that's how i'd see them well the thing the thing that i think is positive is that people are talking about this a lot more and nothing is going to get fixed if it's hidden so the more it's talked about um the more and i think there also there's a lot of help available online which obviously isn't the same as professional yeah. help but it might open a few doors yeah. for people and can be really helpful yeah um so um <laughs> this next one's uh for you dean um okay. moving on again to a different topic uh anonymous poster has said that they understand that high anxiety fight or flight uh, was incredibly advantageous when you're surrounded by big things with teeth or potentially mm. surrounded by big things with big teeth that were trying to eat you mm. and the problem is we've still got it and we don't we at least here in the uk generally don't have a tiger just down the road mm. um but has there just not been enough time for this to evolve out of the population or is does it actually still have a use? Um, well, no, that's, that's exactly the problem in that <clears throat> those are the fight or flight systems, the threat detection mechanisms in our brain, which are highly sensitive to look for any sorts of dangers. They evolved over millions upon millions of years. And a lot of them are in, in, intrinsically linked to the very fundamental, deepest parts of our brain. And we share them with many, many other species who have similar reflexes, similar processes. And, you know, we say we, we don't have we're not surrounded by predators at all times at the moment, literal uh, predators which are going to eat this. But that change in our environment has only come about in the last, well, maybe let's, let's say 10,000 years, which is like this morning in, in evolutionary mm -hmm. terms. So there, there just simply hasn't been enough time for these systems to go away. But what has happened in many ways is the brain's become, the human brain's become a sort of victim of its own success because we can now envisage and like comprehend a much wider range of threats, things like, Will this cost me my job? Am I going to be embarrassed by this? You know, if the economy goes down, am I going to be able to afford my mortgage? You know, what if I didn't do this? What if I got the wrong flight? These are all things which have no direct physical harm potential, but we worry about them anyway. But the part of the brain which worry, handles stress and worry is the same one. So it reacts the same to, could I lose my job? To there is a wolf next to me. And no, it, maybe not to the same extent, but it's the same system being triggered by both because we can, we we are far more aware of possible threats now of their intangible nature but the same system in the brain is there to sort of cause a stress reaction now which 
you know, according to a lot of the research, is what underlies a lot of mental health problems in the modern age. So, yes, it just simply hasn't been enough time for this to go away yet. So, Nav, do we want it to go away? I mean, it, does it have use? Nice. Does it have use? Nice. Still? Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Dean's absolutely right about the time, but there's also the 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 idea that these aren't <clears> simple <throat> genetic disorders. You know, they're a they're a combination of the vulnerability we carry in our genes and what happens to us. So that that's that's another thing. And the other thing is, you know, are certain traits actually adaptive? And we've already talked about how they might be um and in fact you know um the fight or flight the the anxiety response you know can be helpful will be helpful to you when you're running your 24-hour show you know that 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 the the adrenaline that's going to be flowing the fight or flight that's going to help you put on an even better show um you know but even for more kind of serious uh mental disorders people with bipolar affective disorders sometimes you know people have periods of heightened activity that that can be that can be really adaptive. So, um, in, in, you know, some um, writers, some um, academics have talked about, you know, mental illness being almost part and parcel of the human condition. And, and for the majority of the population, it's adapted. But sometimes, you know, for a small proportion of people, it, 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 it kind of it's almost maladaptive. So I think. So by um, adaptive, you mean that it's useful? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So so I think um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, we, we don't want people to suffer. We want to have brilliant access to people with psychological health problems and brilliant treatments. Um, but, you know, our emotions, we're not going to make our emotions and our um, differential response to situations go away. That's part of what being human means. And and Susie, just on the, on the fight or flight thing, how, I mean, presumably I mean, one of the reasons people use drugs is to enhance or to is is there is is that is the fight or flight mechanism part of recreational drug use? Do people use it? Is it a tool in you know that people use drugs to to play with or to enhance, or is it just a completely separate thing? I think potentially, yeah. There's definitely a lot of evidence that people who experience anxiety might be more likely to use substances to manage their anxiety. I mean, certainly social anxiety is something that people say that they use alcohol to deal with like lots and lots of people say that where where i mean and we've all probably done it to a greater or lesser extent if you're going out to a party with your partner and and all of their friends that you don't know you're going to be more relaxed after you've had or you're going to feel more relaxed potentially after you've had a drink it's going to be easier to talk to strangers that kind of thing and so that sort of using substances like that to kind of manage anxiety is potentially what people do it's not necessarily a good idea though and certainly not longer term because what what tends to happen is that if you start to rely on a substance as a crutch in that kind of way then your relationship with it fundamentally or can change into a relationship whereby you feel like you need it each time and that that can really be a predictor of then developing problematic use, increasing use and relying on it in a way that's unhealthy and potentially yeah, really, really damaging. So it might seem to work in the short term, but or particularly alcohol as well. You might feel better that evening, but the next day you're probably going to feel worse and longer term <laughs> is definitely not a good strategy. Well, at least your body's, your body's got, got, a got a feedback mechanism to tell you. As Dean said, you get an immediate re- response pretty much to what happens. Okay, we, we are out of time. We did not get through all the questions. Um, but uh, thank you to our three brilliant guests, Dean and Nav and Susie. Uh, a reminder that the 24-hour show will all start on December the 12th and finish on December the 13th at some point, <laughs> as Susie said. Probably not on time, but hey. Um, uh, so that's Nine Lessons of Carol's for Social Distance People. Uh, the uh, do- documentary um on um 
I've forgotten the name temporarily. Uh, An An Uncanny Hour is out for Patreon supporters now. And um, yes, we hope to see you next week. Do support us on Patreon if you can. And thank you very much and see you next week. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.